In our Good Friday sermon a couple of days ago, we looked at this relentless, unforgiving darkness of Psalm 88. You could read Psalm 88 at your leisure. It is a bleak text. And we mentioned that Jesus has his own version of Psalm 88, and that is Psalm 22. More specifically, it's the first half of Psalm 22, which was just read this morning. The beginning and end of the first half were read along with the second half. And if you look at the first half of Psalm 22, you will see one there who enters into the darkness of Psalm 88, who penetrates into that darkness. And you can see the depth of the desolation, the sheer God forsakenness that Jesus endured and endured for our sakes. The psalm opens, of course, with that most dreadful of questions. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's asked by this one at the very bottom of our darkness. And then, a little later in Psalm 22... In verses 20 and 21, the suffering servant is surrounded, the text says, by raging beasts, a metaphor for Jesus' bloodthirsty enemies. And he pleads for deliverance. He pleads for rescue, for God to save his life. And what occurs there between verses 21 and 22 of Psalm 22 is the event which creates the church. The event which we celebrate this morning. The bodily resurrection of Jesus, who is the Christ. It occurs there in the darkness of the tomb. It occurs there in the silence between those two verses of the text. And thus the psalm follows the whole pattern of the Hebrew prophets. The pattern of predicting both the sufferings of Christ... And then his subsequent glories, his humiliation, his disfigurement, and then his exaltation. And so this morning, beginning at Psalm 22, verse 22, we will look at the glories which follow the darkness of Good Friday. And like Easter itself, this is a text full of wonderful surprises. And so, we'll make four points. They're there on an outline on the back inside page of your bulletin. The vow, the meal, the nations, and the future. The vow, the meal, the nations, and the future. So the first point here is the vow. Verse 22. Psalm 22, verse 22. The resurrection having intervened between verses 21 and 22 This verse is a startling depiction of the priorities, the central focus of Jesus, the now risen one, the afflicted one who's now raised. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. It's important to see what's going on here. This is the risen Christ presenting his people 
in himself to the Father in the heavenly temple. He is in his risen humanity, as Calvin puts it, the chief conductor of our hymns to God. And this is so because he's not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I will declare your name to my brethren. He shares our nature. He took on our frailty. And thus his risen destiny is your destiny. The first thing the text declares is that the risen one is your elder brother. And thus the creator of a new family. And the risen one begins by calling us to worship. And stunningly, note this in the text, he, the risen Jesus, worships God in the midst of the congregation. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. Those are the first words out of the mouth of the risen one here. So Jesus, if we may speak this way, has his back turned to us in worship. And we shelter in behind him as our forerunner and our leader. And he who is risen gathers up as our elder brother. He gathers up our frail and our weak and our defective worship and our wandering prayers. He gathers it up in his glorified, risen humanity and he offers it as he offers us in himself to the Father. So, this is what is happening when we worship the risen Christ. Three things are crucial here. First, this means the resurrection is a corporate event. His resurrection is the resurrection of the church, the people of God. That's why what happens here in Psalm 22 is that the lonely voice, the solitary voice, the voice of mourning, the voice of one isolated sufferer becomes now a choir of many voices. His resurrection is our resurrection. No resurrection, no church. Secondly, this means the resurrection is the act which grounds and enables the church's worship. All of our worship is resurrection worship. There's no time when the church is on the other side of this resurrection. The church is the historical product of this resurrection. It exists as the correlate to this resurrection. And we worship in and with and through the crucified but now exalted Christ. This is the truth behind the commonplace that every Sunday is Easter Sunday. All time is Easter time. All time is resurrection time. Third thing I want to note here is that there are two I wills, Jesus says, I will twice in verse 22. He says, I will declare your name and I will praise you. And these acts of will, acts of volition, they imply that the suffering one made a vow. He made a vow in his distress. He is, first of all, our peace offering. 
And the one who is our offering had vowed. He had promised upon deliverance to enter the tabernacle and to offer thanksgiving to God and to celebrate his deliverance, which is what any suffering Israelite would have done. And our worship is a result of that oath that he took. And so in verse 23, the risen Jesus continues his call to us. It's really a call to worship. He he calls to those in Israel. He begins with those near at hand, the descendants of Israel and Jacob. And he calls them to celebrate with him in his oath-keeping worship. And the reason for the celebration is given in verse 24. For he, meaning God, has not despised. Or disdain the suffering of the afflicted one. He has not hidden his face from him. But he has listened to his cry for help. The resurrection undoes the abandonment. And the silence. And the distance. And the disfigurement. And the horror. And the torment. And the torture of Roman state-sponsored execution the mocking rage of his enemies of the first half of the psalm. It shatters the darkness of Psalm 88, the darkness of Good Friday. The voice of this one has not been despised. The face of God, appearances to the contrary notwithstanding, the face of God was not turned away from him. His cries seemingly ignored are heard. There is, I believe, no hope for the resolution of history's torrential waves of anguish apart from this. And now he who has trusted in the dark at the bottom of human misery, he now summons us all to worship in the resurrection light. The resurrection is about the radiance of the glory and the splendor of Christ being set on display for the world. And this, beloved, this is the fount from which all of our praise flows. God has heard Jesus' cry from the cross in the midst of his anguish, in the midst of his suffering, in the midst of the human predicament. And so the resurrection then is not a fact among other facts. You know, it's not a thing that you can domesticate and say, I think I'll I'll take a look at it and see if I think it's true. It's much like Jesus, who's not a fact among other facts, who does not appear and say, I'm going to make some claims now, and I'd like you to do your own independent research and see if you think my claims are true. If you think my claims are true, then please, I, 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 I encourage you strongly, follow me. Jesus foots, footnotes no one. He asserts, I am the living God in human flesh. I have all authority in heaven and earth. Follow me. There's no way to get behind his back and verify him. He says, no one verifies me. I verify everything else. The resurrection is the fact which makes all other facts have any meaning at all. And it cannot be domesticated or situated in an array of other facts. It's a certain kind of radiance. It's the resurrection of the church. It creates the birth. It is the birth of this great worshiping congregation. 
And so the text continues. And Jesus says, before those who fear you, I will fulfill my vow. Here he imitates again the standard Old Testament Israelite sufferer. For example, Psalm 116 says this, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? I will lift up the cup of salvation and call on the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. This type of vow not only requires public thanksgiving, which we've looked at, but a festive meal in the presence of the Lord with the friends and the family of the one who's been delivered. That's what this vow would have entailed. And that brings us to the second point, which is the meal. The meal. Verse 26. The afflicted, literally here the poor, shall eat and be satisfied. Jesus came and proclaimed the gospel to the poor. And here he says through the, re- through the resurrection that the poor and the oppressed of the earth are going to be drawn into table fellowship. They're going to eat and drink with the risen one. Later on, down in verse 29, this is picked up. All the prosperous, meaning the rich, literally the fat ones, the rich of the earth are called to eat and feast and worship. So it's a picture in the wake of the resurrection, where the rich put aside their self-sufficiency and their arrogance and join the afflicted poor at a single family feast with their risen one who is their elder brother, who presides at the feast. The feast will even include, verse 29 says, all those who go down to the dust, even those who cannot keep themselves alive. I mean, after all, this feast, which we engage in at the Lord's table, at the Holy Supper, or at least we engage in a sign of it there, this is the feast of the resurrection. And death itself will not triumph over those called to recline at this table in the coming kingdom of God. That's why the text says, even those who go down to the dust shall partake of this feast. We heard from the Old Testament lesson, from Isaiah, who looked ahead to this day, this age of resurrection. And Isaiah says this, On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast, a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well-refined. The resurrection is about feasting. It's a call not only simply to worship and praise, but to celebratory eating and drinking with the risen one, which the church has always acknowledged and thus placed the supper in the middle of the community. And notice in this this feast, all social classes are broken down in the festive meal. There are no first class seats at the Lord's table. You can't upgrade to business class. The rich, the poor, the afflicted, the prosperous, even the dead now constitute the family of the risen one, the great congregation summoned to the great festival of gladness. Easter then is a corporate event. It is not something which merely happens to Jesus, something that's merely out there. It is about our solidarity with him and his victory. 
Our solidarity with him in his worship. Our solidarity with him and one another in this celebratory eating and drinking in the presence of God. Which we do there and which we do when we share meals together. Which we shall do at the brunch afterwards today. The Lord has kept his vow. He has kept his vow. Thus we worship and we eat and we drink. The third point here is the nations. In verse 27, the risen one extends the call, this call to worship from Jerusalem to all the ends of the earth. For the text says they too shall remember and turn to the Lord. The resurrection is the beginning of a new age, of a new order, of a new creation. Which means it's the beginning of an end to the agony of this age. It begins the undoing of Babel. Now the scattered and divided nations are called, recalled to the unity of the worship of this risen one. We should notice here that this language in Psalm 22 explodes all the natural banks of what could be reasonably said to be true of David or any Israelite king. The text cannot be contained in Israel's history. It finds its fulfillment in Christ. This is nothing less in view here than the calling of the Gentiles. The fulfillment of that great and ancient promise to Abraham that in the Christ now raised all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And so it's not simply, it is not simply rich and poor, but it's Jew and Gentile, Israel and the nations who are implicated and they're caught up into the movement of the resurrection. And so all of this demonstrates, as verse 28 puts it, that kingship or dominion belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations. The resurrection establishes in public the universal kingship of Jesus Christ. And it exerts its majestic and magnetic pull on all the nations. Finally, one last point here from Psalm 22 on the resurrection. That's the future. Verse 30, again, speaking of the risen one, says, Posterity, or an innumerable seed in some translations, shall serve him. Earlier, the text began with the risen one calling for the seed of Israel, the offspring of Israel, to worship him. Here, it envisions a future, perpetual, international seed of worshipers. His kingship over the nations, we might say, shows us the scope of the resurrection In space. And this vision of posterity and of a seed projected out into the future shows us the scope of the resurrection in time. A seed shall serve him. Future generations, the text says in verse 30, shall be told of the Lord. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn. And thus to the rich and to the poor, to the living and the dead, to Jew and Gentile, must be added this. 
all future coming generations. They too are swept up in the glory of the resurrection. For the resurrection creates a holy, Catholic, international, universal church. It sweeps up in its majesty every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, and every generation. It's a magnificent vision. The risen one is Lord and he's alive and he's radiant. And the splendor of his life fills heaven and earth in the view of the psalmist. And it fills the future. It is not a fact among other facts. It is the fact by which all other facts can be. He lives. And thus this resurrection of the one who was afflicted stretching out into the future like this, this is what creates the missionary calling of the church. Notice the word told. They they will be told of the Lord and proclaim. They will proclaim His righteousness. The text demands the publication of the gospel. This is why we share the good news. Because something stupendous has happened. And we want to invite people into it. The gospel is the gospel of the resurrection. The good news of the abolition of death. Which is the the only good news the human race needs. It's the fundamental human problem. And only the gospel answers it. Because only the gospel brings life and immortality to light. And so these verses. They call on parents. To teach their children, their seed, the seed of the church, our holy faith. Our holy faith as it is disclosed and unveiled in the resurrection. The resurrection means parents, grandparents, great-grandparents, cannot remain mute. They must tell, the text says, of the Lord to the coming generation. And proclaim His righteousness to a people yet unborn. And this impulse, this resurrection impulse, is the concern of the whole church. It's the task of the great congregation which worships in and with and through this Christ to summon the nations, the ends of the earth, the rich, the poor. And we summon them to a feast of gladness and thanksgiving. I think sometimes people don't hear that note when we preach the gospel to them or proclaim it to them. It's a summons to this festival. The resurrection means, as John Wesley put it, the world is our parish. The world is our parish. And what we do proclaim is put with condensed simplicity at the end of verse 31. He, God the Father of our Lord Jesus Jesus Christ, He has done it. He has answered the one on the cross in his distress. The book of Hebrews tells us of Jesus that he offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries, with tears, with the desperate petitions of Good Friday. And he offered them to the one who was able to save him from death. And Hebrews tells us he was Heard because of his piety. He was saved from death by dying. 
And so Jesus' it is finished is answered here in the resurrection by the astonished exclamation of the psalmist. By God the Father's, he has done it. Dying, he destroys your death. And rising, he restores our life. Psalm 22 has rightly been called the fifth gospel. So vivid and so clear, its depiction not only of the sufferings of Jesus, but the glories to follow a thousand years before Christ. And in the gospel of the resurrection on display here, we have finally, finally, a resolution to the reality of hope deferred, to the darkness, the interminable darkness we spoke of on Friday evening. This resolution to Israel's and to our anguish and to the anguish of the human condition, this is the world's redemption. And it summons us. It summons us to worship with the risen one as his brethren in the great congregation. It summons us to the Eucharistic feast, the feast of thanksgiving and gladness, the meal with every strata of society. And it summons us to summon our children and the world to believe in, to gladly submit to the reign of the Lord over the nations. For as the prophet foretold, the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. For he has done it. Christ is risen. Alleluia. He is risen indeed. Amen.